I'd like to read a verse that you all know so very well from Colossians chapter 3, that whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. It is to you, our Father, because of the work that Jesus Christ has done for our salvation, that we give you thanks this day. Even though this week may have been difficult for many, and many may be sitting here this morning with trials and tribulations surrounding them in their minds and in their lives, but here we are gathered this morning as one to worship you, to study the word which you have given to us, to hear what you would say to us, and Lord, to trust in you. We are thankful for your many promises and the promise that you are here with us this morning helps us to recognize that it is through the fellowship of Jesus Christ that we are true community of brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray your blessing will be upon this entire plant today and the preaching and teaching of the word in each class. And Father, I pray that even as the word is being taught on virtually every continent of the world today, and lives are being one. We trust you, Lord, to expand your kingdom according to your plan. We thank you for hearing us in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2, reading at verse 18. Now Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod. And his mother would make him a little robe and bring it to him from year to year when she would come up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children from this woman in place of the one she dedicated to the Lord. And they went to their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. Last week, as we read the verses that preceded this, we began to be introduced to Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and the kind of character that they were. And we saw that they were men who, the scripture says, did not regard the Lord. And they were individuals who were taking everything they could get for themselves. And in this passage, we, we see a stark contrast to that. We see Eli's sons as men of great wickedness, and we see here the young boy Samuel as a man of obedience while he was still a boy. I mean, he hadn't even come to, come to what we today would know as bar mitzvah yet. And yet he was in training for the priesthood, wearing the priest's linen ephod and ministering before the Lord. What's interesting is that as you read in that passage, it says, now Samuel was ministering before the Lord. The word translated ministering there indicates the significance of what Samuel was doing. This is not the common word for service used in the scripture. So-and-so did service for so-and-so. It's not, it it's not a word having to do with menial service at all. It's the word that generally is used for service rendered by a high-ranking official to his master, such as Joseph would have rendered to Potiphar. It is, was most commonly used for service rendered by the priests and by the Levites to the tabernacle of the Lord. So here we have this young boy. We don't know how old he is in this particular description, but he's probably somewhere between five and 10, somewhere in that bracket. And already he is, ha has a heart for the ministry of the Lord. Hannah, we see, maintains her relationship with her son. She didn't just take him to Shiloh and say, goodbye, I'll see you maybe sometime. 
She came to see him every year. Every time they came up for the annual uh, pilgrimage, she visited her son. And each time, we're told in this passage, she brought him a new robe, a new garment to wear. One which she had, of course, lovingly labored over throughout the course of the year between their visits. This labor of love, of course, helped pacify her in the sense that her son was not here with her and helped her to do something to express her love for this child. What was this robe? Well, it's possible that it was a small version of the white linen garment, uh, ankle-length garment, that the priest wore under the blue linen waist-length ephod. Or it's very possible, of course, that it may have been some sort of a mantle or garment that he was to wear when he was, quote, not in training, sort of off-duty wear, you know. Whatever it was, we're not told exactly here, but she prepared this garment for him so that every year he had a new one. And of course, part of the reason for that was he was a growing boy, and uh, so he needed a larger one each year. We discover from this passage that Elkanah uh, would bring his family annually, as he had been doing before, and each time when he did, and, and they came to visit Samuel, the priest Eli would pray a prayer of blessing for Elkanah and for Hannah. And in that prayer of blessing, he specifically asks that the Lord might give children to Hannah, to Elkanah by Hannah, to replace the son that has been given to Eli to train up for the service. And so he prays this prayer year after year. How many years did they come before these other children came? Well, we don't know. Scripture does not say. I think a conservative estimate would be that it was at least two years after Samuel had been given to the service of the tabernacle, which would mean probably a minimum of five years from the time that Samuel was born before other children were born to Hannah. I don't think that the verse in the, that 21, verse 21 of this passage, is a reference to quintuplets. <laughs> this verse gives us the story of the beginning of God's answer to Eli's prayer and God's blessing because of Hannah's faithfulness. One of the just overarching truths of the first two chapters of the book of 1 Samuel is the faithfulness of Hannah. She is really the hero of these first two chapters in, in so many ways, far more so than her husband, who seems just to be sort of an auxiliary person here in, in the whole story. And of course, Samuel, who will later become the key figure, is still in his uh, young years. In the years that followed, children were born. We're told in the passage that three sons and two daughters were born to Hannah. So the former barren one, the one who carried her shame because she had not borne her husband a child, and because she had not borne her husband a child, he had made the rather foolish uh, mistake of marrying another wife in order to have children, which we talked about back when we dealt with the first chapter. It was a very common practice in that part of the world, but was not a practice that was ordained by God. She is no longer barren. And no longer can Penina, this other wife, torture her with words saying that you have not fulfilled your job. You, you are nobody in this society. You've never had a child because now she's had six, six children, which was a blessing for any family. 
But what about these three boys and two girls, these three sons and two daughters? Think about them for a minute. How would you like to be born? I, I'm not saying it's, it's bad or any such thing. But it would have been difficult for these children to be born into a family where they would be so overshadowed by their elder brother. Samuel would become a great man. He would be priest in Israel. He would be Shofat in Israel. And he would be Israel's first great prophet. He would be a man who was lauded by, by both the Israelites themselves as well as by God. And you're his brother. <laughs> you're his sister. You know, we don't hear much about these. And certainly they stood in his shadow. It might have been just a little bit like what it was for the half-brothers and sisters of Jesus that are referred to in the New Testament, to, to have this perfect older brother who never does anything wrong. It must have been really galling uh, for, for them. Now, of course, for these five, they didn't have Samuel in the home to, uh, to, to be a problem because he was off in Shiloh and they only saw him once a year. But still, as he grew, he would be the center of attention and uh, they probably would not. As I'm making reference to Shiloh, let me just again point out where we're at here. Shiloh is located right here. It's almost dead center in, in the Israelite possession because the Israelites possessed the east side over here and then they possessed this territory. These red lines are not the territory we're talking about now. These red lines outline the kingdom of Saul, uh, which would come uh, in a little bit later in the book of Samuel. But the land that supposedly belonged to the 12 tribes of Israel uh, came all the way down into the Negev down here and down to the northern border of Moab here and all the way up the east side to, into the territory of what is Syria today and then across to the border of the Phoenician territory over here. So this is the vast territory. And Shiloh's just about dead center in that. Shiloh's up in the hill country of Ephraim, small town then, small town today. And, uh, but that's where the tabernacle was and that's where Samuel was living and that's where his mother and father and family would migrate, or would not migrate, but make a pilgrimage each year, the 15 or 20 miles from Ramah here to Shiloh. The last phrase of verse 21 makes a rather wonderful statement. And the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. Now physically, of course, he was growing up in the context of the center of the worship of God. He was growing up at Shiloh. He was growing up not only in Shiloh, he was growing up on the tabernacle precinct. And so physically, it was associated with the manifestation of God's presence. But I think, obviously, what we're looking at here is not just his physical closeness to the Lord, but he was developing a mental and spiritual uh, awareness of God and maturing in the ways of God, as we're going to discover as we look into the third chapter. He doesn't really know the Lord in, a, in an intimate, vital way yet, but his knowledge of the Lord is growing and he is developing a great awe for this, this God of Israel. As he grew under the direction and the protection of Eli, I think it was, it's probable that Eli may have begun to get a little bit of an inkling somewhere that maybe this boy is going to be somebody important and maybe even this boy will be my replacement. I don't think he was convinced of that yet, but probably it was beginning to percolate into his skull. Verse 22 of 1 Samuel chapter 2. Now Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel. 
how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, for the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor, both with the Lord and with men. We're told in this passage that Eli was very old. We don't know exactly how old at the time this passage was written. Or, uh, I'm sorry, at the time the passage refers to him. Probably he was pushing 90. But age is mentioned here, I think, primarily for two reasons. First is to give at least a partial explanation for the weakness of the rebuke of his sons. You read that rebuke, and it's not a very strong rebuke. But secondly, I think it is there to emphasize the fact that time is running out. Eli's career will soon end. Someone needs to step into the position of chief priest in Israel. Samuel, of course, we know was being prepared to really replace Eli in virtually every part of Eli's function, at least in his, his leadership as priest and shofar or judge. He, he would not replace him as, as prophet because Eli is not truly a prophet. Uh, Samuel will be the first really great prophet in Israel's history. In fact, he will, be, he, he will establish a, quote, a seminary for prophets and uh, will lead the school of prophets during his lifetime. But does Eli really understand that yet? Does Eli really come to an understanding that I am now training the one who is going to take my place and he better start growing up fast because I'm getting old? We, we don't know if those were his thoughts. But what we do know from this passage was that complaints were coming to the ears of Eli. He was hearing the complaints of God's people who were coming to the tabernacle to worship and they were witnessing things, these things and experiencing these things and they were reporting back to Eli the vile activities of his sons. Now remember, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, the killing, but hadn't done the proper burning and bleeding yet, and they would demand the meat right now from, from, for the offering for the priest. That was bad. But what we're reading here in this passage was that Hophni and Phinehas were having promiscuous sex with the female temple or tabernacle servants, those who had dedicated themselves to serve at the tabernacle for a period of time. They were being put upon by Hophni and Phinehas. Why did Hophni and Phinehas do this? Well, we are already told why in the, in the previous couple of previous passages back. In verse 12, they said, we read, they had no regard for the Lord. They totally ignored God. And we're also told in verse 17 that they despised the offering of the Lord. If you have no regard for the Lord and despise everything that's associated with him, what do you care if God looks down with great anger at what you are practicing? Eli's sons did whatever pleased them regardless of whom it harmed. Whether it harmed these women or, or the people that came with their sacrifices or if it was vile in the eyes of God, they didn't care. They were out to please themselves. And if the Lord's name was blasphemed, that's the Lord's problem they thought. Their excuse, I think, probably to the women as they violated them 
was, well, all the other countries around here do this. They have this ritual prostitution associated with the worship of their God, so why shouldn't we? Well, the reason Israel shouldn't was that the scripture, the word of the Lord through the law of Moses was very explicit. In Deuteronomy 23, we read, None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, nor shall any of the sons of Israel be a cult prostitute. Yet that's exactly what these men were practicing there in the tabernacle of the Lord. Eli rebuked his sons, and this rebuke is recorded in verses 23 to 25 of this passage. But that rebuke fell totally on deaf ears. He might as well have talked to the wall. Hophni and Phinehas had hardened their hearts. They had hardened their hearts because they had, even though the word does not express it here in so many terms, they had sold themselves out to the evil one. Again, as, as I have emphasized before, I, I would like to emphasize again, Satan was very active in those days, just as he is today. And I think Satan had uh, the capacity to even put greater pressure there because there were far fewer human beings in the world to have to fool with. And so we're looking at vileness out of the pit of hell being practiced in the name of the Lord. Eli's warnings made absolutely no impact. If their sins had only been against the men and the women, and, and not any further than that, Eli says, God provided a way that could be mediated. There were laws, there, there, were, there was the, the coming before the council of the elders, there was ways that that could be dealt with. But if you violate and sin against the Lord, who's going to mediate for you? You stand guilty before God. There is no mediator. But of course, the whole story of the scripture is that a mediator was coming. In the word we're taught, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Why? Because a little bit later in Hebrews it says, our God is a consuming fire. Unfortunately, so many people today have a view of God as some kind of a giant teddy bear. He's just sitting up there rocking in his chair and saying, no, you ought not to do that. Do better next time. Looking down at all the vileness in this world. God is not a teddy bear. He's not an old man in a chair. He's a consuming fire. All we saw when you read the account of Mount Sinai and the Lord appearing to Moses up there is a little bit, teeny, teeny little fraction of the glory of God being displayed, and it smoked the mountain. Scripture tells us in Revelation and in, in, in the book, the letter of Peter, that one day the whole earth and the universe will melt with a fervent heat. <laughs> well, that's the glory of God, just whoosh. It's gone, and he rebuilds it because this heaven and this earth has been contaminated by the fall. I think it's very important for us to think of the statement that's made here. Oh, I, I left my original thought. But, but for us, we have to remember that if we repent of our sins, we have an advocate, right? Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is our mediator and who is our deliverer, our advocate before the Father. But of course, it takes repentance, which Hophni and Phinehas, even had Jesus been born by their day and died by their day, uh, they, they rejected any repentance or any responsibility for what they did. They didn't believe a word that their father had said. 
throughout the growing up years of these young men, they had not been disciplined by their father. He had not enforced his word against them. And as a result, when they became mature men, why would they listen to their father? He had never been an authority figure in their lives before. They had no respect for him. They had not paid any attention to him before because he never enforced anything. Scripture tells us in this passage that the Spirit of God made no effort to smite the heart of these men, to convict the heart of these men, to open their eyes to the truth. He made no effort to do that because they had passed the point of no return and God's plan to destroy them was irrevocable. No matter how remiss Eli had been as a father, no matter how he had failed his sons as chief priest, his sons were now adults and they were responsible for themselves. They had grown up in the temple sanctuary, the tabernacle sanctuary. R regardless of what their father had, had or had not said to them or the discipline he had or had not enforced upon them, they had seen the sacrifice to the Lord. They had seen the people worship. They had heard the prayers that were prayed. They had seen and had part in the incense burning and all that had gone along with this and yet they turned their backs on it and totally rejected it. So it was their own personal responsibility. They had every opportunity to seek the Lord and they had rejected him. Therefore, they were without excuse. I think that's really an important point because when you read the account of the great white throne judgment, you don't see anybody with their lawyer appealing <laughs> or, or accusing God of anything because I think everything will be revealed as it really is and everyone will know they're guilty as they stand before God. In stark contrast to these condemning words concerning Hophni and Phinehas are the affirming words relative to Samuel. What is interesting is look again at verse 26. Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor with both the Lord and men. Now listen to these words from Luke 2. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Of Samuel it was said what it would be said of Jesus. I'm not saying, of course, that Samuel was like Jesus in, that, in the ultimate sense, but he was developing a Christ-like character. Even though Christ had not yet been born, he was developing a character like Yahweh. I think it's really important for us to realize Years ago, when I was doing some undergraduate study, one of the professors kept emphasizing it wasn't a Bible school, it was, in a, it was in a secular university, but he was talking about the fact that the God of the Old Testament is just an angry, angry being. <laughs> well, he's an angry being uh, if, if all you do is read certain things and you don't read the whole Testament and you don't get the understanding of what it's saying because the, the, the words that keep coming out of the Old Testament are that he's a God of mercy, that his loving kindness endures forever. He's a God of love, a compassion. How does Samuel become a man who grows in stature before men and the Lord? How does he develop a Christ-like character unless that is the character of Yahweh? There were some like the individual by the name of Martian who lived in the second, third century who thought of the God of the Old Testament as as well, much like the, uh, the Manichaeans and the Zoroastrians thought of, of a God that was harsh and strong and, you know, really vile. And then another view being the New Testament God who's, who's loving and kind and sweet, kind of contrasting God the Father with, with Jesus. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're looking at a triune Godhead uh, where three persons are of total, in total accord. 
The character of Jesus is the character of God, the character of the Holy Spirit. Let's read uh, beginning verse 27. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? And did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar and burn incense, and to carry the ephod before me? And did not I give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling? And honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choices of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house, and you will see the distress of my dwelling in spite of all that I do good for Israel. And an old man will not be in your house forever, yet I will cut off every man of yours from my altar I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar, that your eyes may fail from weeping and your soul grieve, and all the increase of your house will die in the prime of life. And this will be the sign to you, which shall come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them shall die. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul. And I will build him an enduring house, and he will walk before my anointed always. And it shall come about that everyone who is left in your house shall come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, please assign me to one of the priest's offices so that I may eat a piece of bread. <laughs> Such stark contrast to what Hophni and Phinehas were doing, going around strong-arming all the best for themselves. The Lord sent an unnamed prophet to speak to Eli. He is the chief priest. And yet the Lord has to send a prophet to him. How parallel that, parallel that is to David. The apple of God's eye. The king of Israel. The leader of, uh, of Israel in his worship of God. And God has to send a prophet to him. And say you're the man. I think we're all at times in need of a wake up call. This prophet came to inform Eli. Of the horrible consequences. Of the sins of his sons and of his failure to faithfully and strongly warn them of the way they should walk from the time they were babes. Notice how the prophet prefaces his remarks. He says, thus says the Lord, so that Eli would know that what is being said is not the opinion of this man, but it is the word of God himself. Through this prophet, we discover here that God reminded Eli of the sacred privilege that was his, that he had inherited from Aaron, Moses' brother, who was his ancestor. He was descended from Aaron. He had the extraordinary privilege of wearing the priestly ephod and of going before the Lord to burn the holy incense and to make sacrifice. It was a privilege. It was an honor to be able to do that. Literally, it says there to walk up on the steps of the altar where no one else could walk. Eli was accused of kicking at, literally scorning, God's sacrifices and offerings. Why? Because he honored his sons above the Lord. Now, 
Eli certainly did not consciously do that. He didn't sit down and think, well, I think my sons are better than God. He never had a thought like that, you can believe. But he actually honored his sons above the Lord because of his failure to consciously and purposely and seriously deal with his sons because of their blatant sins. He was more afraid of offending his sons than he was afraid of offending the sovereign God. I think one of the biggest problems that we can face from time to time is downplaying how God really looks at our lives. We, we have developed in some circles a kind of Jesus is our buddy mentality. Just throw our arm around Jesus, walk down the road like a couple of good buddies, you know. He's the sovereign God, the Lord of the universe. Yes, he is our friend. He is the lover of our souls. He knows us and loves us better than anyone else, but he loves us so much he won't let us walk in sin. He won't let us do those things which hurt, hurt, are hurtful to us. Now, of course, we decide that well, being rich isn't hurtful to me, is it? Uh, having two wives isn't hurtful to me, is it? Yes, it is hurtful. <laughs> These things can be very damning to us because they turn our eyes off of God and cause us not to be channels of blessing. God wants you and me every day to be a conduit, a, a channel through which he can flow, through which his blessing can flow to touch the lives of other people. That's what we're here for. We're here to declare his glory. And we can't declare it if we're a mirror that's all covered with dirt and mud. Nobody can see the image of Christ. We need to have that mirror clean day by day so that we reflect the glory of Christ to those. That's our job. That's what we're here for. We're not here to do whatever it is we do 40 hours a week. That's not our primary purpose in life, but to reflect Christ in the doing of that and in every aspect of our lives. The law of Moses was clear concerning how God expected the Israelites to deal with rebellious sons. And Eli had rebellious sons. Let me read from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 18. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them. Then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gateway of his hometown. And they shall say to the elders of the city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death. So you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear of it and fear. Now, I'm thankful that's not part of the law. Uh, you know, we don't live under that today. But God takes rebellion seriously. <laughs> I don't know how many of you read the little cartoon Mallard, but there was one this week where, I don't remember all the setting, but it was a criminal guy with a hood over his head, and he was saying something to the effect that, you know, uh, capital punishment means nothing to me. I don't care if they're going to fry me, but if it's against the law to use a gun, I, I better not do that. You know, and the whole point is, <laughs> you know, capital punishment doesn't deter crime, but a law against having guns will deter crime. And of course, you know, that's nonsense. It's absurdity because that's not the root of the problem. The root of the problem is a heart of rebellion that will not accept chastisement. And God says here that if you take this son out and if you stone him, others will hear of it and they will fear and that will really reduce rebellion. How many sons will remain rebellious if they know that's what's going to happen to them? Not too many.
But what did Eli do? At the very most, he just said, you shouldn't be doing that, boys. He was the chief priest. He was the judge of Israel. He had as much authority as anybody, more than anybody else in the land, and yet his sons got away with whatever they wanted to do with nothing but a little bit of a cross glance from their father. How in stark contrast to Samuel, a young man who was taken out of his home at three years of age and placed in the care of this very man, Eli, and yet he grew in the nurture, admonition, the stature uh, before the Lord, and would become a man of God on par with Abraham and Moses, the great leader in Israel. I'm really looking forward to someday meeting Samuel and talking with this individual. I think that all of us will, will find it very interesting the day we do get to talk to Abraham and, and Moses and those and find that they're just plain ordinary folk who really walked with God. Well, we don't have time to pursue this further but today, but we're going to discover that God's Word against Eli and his house is very strong. If you got the drift of the passage as I read it, God was saying that your house will not ever again have an old man in it like you are, Eli. Sort of like God is building in a gene of early death and all the sons in the family are going to kick off at 45 or some such thing. Well, that's probably not what happened, but Hoffman and Phineas would be a good example because they would be killed by the enemies of God and the enemies of Israel while they were still young men.